You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, King's Cross. This, I am Chad, one of the pastors. If we haven't met before, let's do so before the end of the day. But uh, today we're going to be jumping into the passage of Acts 27, actually all the way through 28, verse 10. It's a, it's a journey um, story. It's the story in which we've been building up to essentially in Acts. As Aaron already mentioned, we're coming towards the end. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along with me. There's a lot going on, but, uh, but I want to pray that as we dive into this text, that the Lord be with us and guide us and uh, ask you to join with me in prayer. Father, thank you for your kindness to each of us. Father, thank you that in your providence you brought us together this morning. And God, I trust that as we are encouraged by your word that all those who would hear this morning and into the future what we read and see today, that their hearts would find a foundation in Christ. Father, I ask that you guide us this morning in our conversation and the message and the word that we read and that your spirit would teach us and make us more like Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So this particular passage, as we've seen up till this point in Acts, um, just before this, Paul has gone through a few different random trials, a different um, uh, hearings. He's, he's not found to be guilty, but he's had... He's found himself to have to appeal to Caesar, so he's heading to Rome. Now, the journey to Rome is one that is remarkable. It's, an, it's, a, it's a remarkably detailed account uh, that actually lends credibility to the accuracy. We, we learn a lot from this voyage that he takes about actually what ancient seafaring looked like at the time. It's it's unusually lengthy account, given the overall length of Acts, covering more than a chapter out of 28. Um, It's a very popular structure that Luke follows when he's putting this together of many other stories of seafaring, of of voyages into uh, uh, storms and shipwrecks. But it's notable in this story, what's notable is the absence of any kind of explicit gospel presentation by Paul or, or actually any noted conversions of anybody. It's over a chapter in which, of, of a book in which we've been telling you is about the advancement of the kingdom of God, and Paul's just kind of doing his thing. He's living his life. There is, a, there is a point that we just read about where he, he sees a vision, and he, and he communicates that as an encouragement to the people with him. But beyond that, we don't see any evidence that he actually tries to win anyone to faith. And the center of the story is the navigation of the sea. The center of the story is the navigation of the storm. You see, in the ancient world, the sea was seen as perilous, as unpredictable, tumultuous, a place of danger and changeableness. Jesus spoke of the roaring and tossing of the sea as part of the tribulation of the end times in Luke 21. Psalm 46 speaks of the need to trust God, although the sea's waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Revelation 21.1, when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth coming down, we're told that the new earth 
is not going to have, it says there will no longer be any sea, which might sound really sad for those of us who like the ocean. But, but really, it seems to be suggesting that more so that the new earth will not be a place of turmoil and fear. Now, we, we might have forecasts and better boats today, but honestly, the sea is still pretty perilous and unpredictable for us. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times as we're sitting on the coast at the beach and watching the kids just trying to catch the waves or myself. I mean, I get knocked over. It's powerful. It's dangerous. It's unpredictable. Uh, we might, uh, it doesn't even have to be the ocean when things can get sideways on a lake. Uh, I was out uh, not too long ago with our family on a pontoon boat. Anybody ever in one of those? It seems like the safest kind of boat you can be on. We just got onto the boat. We were riding out with family, and, and it was a chance of rain, but it went very quickly from a chance of rain to it is definitely coming right now. Skies went dark, wind started roaring in, blowing us like crazy. The water starts getting choppy. So we're like, we got to get back. <laughs> we're moving as fast as a pontoon boat moves. And uh, when it comes to, if you see many of these stories, people tend to like throw the cargo overboard to lighten the load. See, if I was on one of those boats, they'd be eyeing me. So, especially on a little pontoon boat. Let's, let's get this weight off. <laughs> And being on the front of this pontoon boat and the choppiness of the water, the first time I've ever seen this, the water came rushing up, hit the front of the boat, and the pontoon boat started to go down, and the water just rushed up over everything. It's crazy. Kids are chaos screaming. I'm not terribly worried. I'm running to the back. I believe my sister-in-law started praying out loud. It was, it was a whole moment. But, <laughs> but the view of the sea as unpredictable and perilous isn't really much different from human life in general. I, I mean, we can be extremely precautious, carefully watch our health, count our macros, make all the right moves financially, and in a moment it can all change. I, I, I would imagine that the majority of us in here could point to a story just like that, whether it's affected you or someone you know. A family friend at a church in the past, we knew him. He went in for a checkup one time because he had some stomach issues and stomach pains. Everything was normal as far as he was concerned. They went in to get checked out. They saw some concerns and very quickly went from maybe he's got some kind of a hernia to cancer was covering the entire inside of his stomach lining. Just an upset stomach. He went from, what plans are we making for next summer to will I make it the next couple of months? Some other friends of us, of ours from Richmond, wonderful family, beautiful kids, loved him dearly. He was a news reporter. Went up like any other day in Charlotte to go fly and report on news and weather and traffic. And the helicopter went down. And his family today doesn't have their father. See, when the winds and the seas of life change, we have to ask what anchors us. And you shouldn't, and you should be sure of that question even before the storm comes. <laughs> I was out with a buddy of mine on his John boat. Strikingly, his name was John, and we were fishing. 
We're out fishing, and he says, hey, Chad, throw out the anchor for me. I said, sure, being the, the sailor that I am. <laughs> Took the anchor, dropped it off, chatting away. What's up, buddy? Letting it go until eventually the rope just kind of left my hands. I said, John, did we need that anchor? <laughs> I thought he already had it tied off. We shouldn't assume that we're already anchored. Because what we are anchored to affects the overflow of our life. In fact, it's a quite a common analogy that when you squeeze a lemon, lemon juice comes out. When you squeeze an orange, orange juice comes out. And when life squeezes us, what is going to come out? Truly, this passage, even though it is absent of explicit gospel presentation, it's instructive for us as believers in our everyday lives as we look at how Paul navigates a truly tumultuous time in his own. <laughs> Everything in his actual life is kind of crazy, and then he gets thrown into a literal storm and a shipwreck. So first, I want us to walk through and see what is going on in this story and set a little bit of context to understand um, going forward. And then I want to look at what it is that Paul is anchoring himself to and the resulting overflow of his life. So first, let's look at the passage starting in verse 1 of 27. When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy... They handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. When we had boarded a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. So this is the beginning of the journey there were no passenger ships at this time, no Disney cruises, okay? In order to get from one place to the next, they had to pay for passage on a commercial vessel. And one of the standing trade routes from, uh, was from Egypt to Rome, bringing them grain. It was a big trade, a lot of money to be made. Rome wanted their grain, Egypt had it, so they had a, ships would bring it. And so what you see here is this centurion that Paul's entrusted to says he's going to go along the coast of Asia, hopefully to catch up with one of these ships that's going to be going with grain to Rome. And notice here the first person account where it says that the next day we put in at Sidon. Remember the author is Luke, indicating, at least suggesting, that Luke is with him on this journey. So he's got a buddy. And it also says that Aristarchus, who is a Macedonian of Thessalonica, is with them. So for some reason, even though Paul's a prisoner, he's got travel partners, like people, friends going along with him. So it seems to be that for some reason, Paul is being allowed to have travel companions. And on verse three, Julius allows him to go visit friends. He's, remember, he's a prisoner. Hey, go visit your friends. Have it. Probably send a guard with him. So the indication here, at least, is that Paul has some good, uh, uh, he has some credibility with the Roman officials, probably because with Festus and Agrippa, they know he didn't, they don't find him guilty. They even said that at the end of the last passage. You're like, but we got to send him to Rome. So in verse four, when we had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea of Sicily, or uh, Sicily, Cilicia, Cilicia, I can't even say it correctly, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. 
There, the centurions found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days with difficulty, we arrived at Sinaitis. Since the winds did not allow us to approach it, we sailed along the south side of Crete off Salmon. With still more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassia. So this is not their ideal route. Even indicates later in this next passage, it's taken longer than it should, but they did find a grain boat heading where it needed to be. It's just, it's not hitting favorable winds. The, leg, the first leg of trip is more difficult than expected. So what does Paul step to the forefront in verse 9 and say? It says, By now much time had passed, and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the Day of Atonement was already over, Paul gave us advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete facing the southwest and northwest, and to winter there. Now, it's important to note, Paul doesn't appear to be giving a prophecy. He's not saying this is going to go bad because God told me. Instead, he's speaking out of his own sea experience. Elsewhere in Corinthians, we see he was shipwrecked multiple times, set adrift. The man's been on boats, okay? And he's, he's seeing all the signs. It goes, this doesn't look like it's going to go well, guys. So that's what he's speaking from. And the note of the Day of Atonement, actually Luke refers to it in this passage as the fast, which is the only, the only fast commanded by the Jews that were familiar with what they're doing, was changed with the calendar because they used a, a lunar calendar, but it was late September to early October, and that's super important because what we know from Roman records is in the Mediterranean, it was said to be extremely dangerous to be sailing after September 15th. And then we know that nobody sailed after like the middle of November. And so Paul says, we're already having a tough time. The fast is over. That means it's late. It's getting into winter. And all the people, it says, all of the ships just start to winter themselves. They're not going to go out there and test the Mediterranean Sea. All right? The owner, though, has some incentives to get the grain to Rome, doesn't he? Okay? He wants to make that bank. Fairhaven was also really not much of a harbor. It wasn't that it wasn't, it wasn't a cool city to hang out in. It might have been a small town. But it was also really, a, it wasn't much of a harbor. It was kind of a big open bay. And so it wasn't going to really protect the ships much from the weather. So they had a point there. So they decide to move forward. And what happens? A gentle south wind sprang up. Oh, the gods must be in our favor. And they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and they sailed along the shore of Crete. But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Northeaster was very familiar to those who would sail the Mediterranean. It occurred all the time. It hit them hard and violently. And guess what? They had nothing they could do about it. In this kind of a vessel, you just hope she landed somewhere soft. And so they just, as it says, we gave way to it and were driven along. Where'd they go? After running under the shelter of a little island called Cauda, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. And after hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing they would run along on Syrtis, they lowered the drift anchor. And in this way, they were driven along because we were being severely battered by the storm. They began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And for many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that we would be saved. Now, 
This is not recommended by your high school English teacher. But this entire passage, this section, is a run-on sentence in Greek. It's very common they would do this. And it's intended to build the drama. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening. That you to know that this is a pretty dire circumstance. And if you know what they're doing when they're tossing ropes and tackle, these are things they need to navigate with. They're like, we don't want the weight. Let's throw it overboard. It says that they were girding the ship. By all accounts, they were trying to throw ropes underneath and over and around the side to try to tie the wood together so it wouldn't split apart. That's what that means, right? If you can imagine, hey, let's just wrap this boat up real quick, see what happens. That's the strategy they would try to, in, they would try to use. And so they're, in the v- very last passage, all hope was fading. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul then stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now, Paul's not going to be the, I, mean, I don't know if he's a good example. I don't want you to stand up and say, I told you so. Whenever something doesn't go the way it should be. <laughs> but in some cases, he's trying to draw their attention to what he said earlier. Because remember he said, he also told them it wasn't going to go well and we were all going to die. All right. 22, now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of our lives, but only of the ship. Why does he say that? For last night, an angel of God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we do have to run aground on some island. So they're gonna lose the ship. He gives them a prophetic word. This is not like before where he's given his best experience, but instead he says, God has told me I must appear before Caesar, and he has told me and graciously given all of your lives as well so that we'll all survive. So then what happens next? When the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and about midnight the sailors thought they were approaching land. They probably heard the crashing of waves. They took soundings and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then fearing we might run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. They're dropping down a really heavy metal object likely. That's what soundings are, listening for it to hit the ground or to feel it hit the bottom and they're, me- and they're, they're measuring how, how deep it's getting. So as you get to land, guess what's happening? All right, it's getting more and more shallow. So they're concerned they might run aground. It's nighttime. They can't see anything because we're told that there has been no sun and no stars. You know how ancient sailors navigated? It wasn't with GPS. So they had no idea where they were. It was dark. They knew they were getting close to land and they didn't want the boat to break apart. So they prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending they were going to put on out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. So it really doesn't make much sense for these sailors to do this. It's actually probably their suicide to go out in that little tiny boat. Skiff's a little itty bitty boat. So they were gonna go out, try to run away. But to be honest with you, when things are dangerous, chaotic, people don't always make the best choices. So it's possible they were trying to just look out for themselves. They're trying to protect myself and hopefully you guys, you do whatever you need to do. And the sailors are about to run, but Paul says, we can't lose the sailors. All we got is a bunch of prisoners and other people. We find out later there's like 276 people on this boat. We need somebody to work the boat, okay? The ship in this particular case. 
they can't run off. It's like, uh, uh, so, so instead, it says they cut the ropes. It's like they overcompensated. Fine, let's get rid of the boat, the skiff. I, I don't know why they did this. It seems like a strange thing to do, but it's accounted for. Verse 33, when it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day, so that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. They all were encouraged and took food themselves. And all, there were 276 of us on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard. They likely had, they jettisoned some cargo earlier, but they kept some down in the bottom as what's called ballast to help keep the ship upright. And they probably, for a lack of food and concern of how long they'd have it last, also because, hey, if you're anxious, do you really feel like sitting down for a meal? If it's a storm, you're thinking you're preparing something, but not baked. They're not eating. It's been 14 days. So Paul encourages them, we're about to get to land. You need your strength. Let's eat. And he blesses it and they eat. And then the shipwreck comes in 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. We're going to go into this bay. And they planned to run the ship ashore if they could. And after cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea at the same time, loosening the ropes that held the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach, but they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. Sandbars are, sandbars are awesome when you're at the beach and you want to go out there really far. They're not cool when you're trying to land a, a boat on the beach. All right? So they ran into a, a sandbar. The bow jammed up fast and remained immovable while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldiers' plan at that point was to kill the prisoners. We don't want them running haywire so no one could swim away and escape. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because they wanted to save Paul. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest were to follow. Some on planks and some on debris from the ship. And in this way, every person on that boat safely reached the shore. So now Paul has been correct. God told them that everyone would survive. The boat doesn't last. It runs aground. But they get to a place, and they find themselves in a place called Malta. It's actually a place you can go to. You can go to see St. Paul's Bay in Malta. I'm now intrigued. I want to go. Once safely ashore, when they learned that the island was called Malta, the local people showed us uh, extraordinary kindness. They, f they lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. Luke refers to them as natives, suggesting they didn't speak Greek. They had some other local tongue that they spoke. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Have you ever been in those situations where everything's not going right and you're like, if one more thing happens, okay? And then a viper comes out randomly out of the fire and bites Paul's hand. When the local people saw this snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, this man no doubt is a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. It might be capitalized in your passage there, justice. That's because they're referring to the God of justice that would not let him escape. They were looking at karma, if you will. This guy must have done something bad. But he shook the snake off into the fire, suffered no harm, and they expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their mind and said he was a god. Paul, uh, Paul here obviously is not harmed by whatever this snake is. It might have not even been 
poisonous. Who knows? Have you ever been out with somebody that every snake they see is poisonous? I mean, who knows? But they say it's a viper. Clearly, God either protected him or it wasn't a threat. But regardless, in the end, Luke is trying to show us these local people are pretty superstitious. They're like, justice is getting him. Oh, wait, he's a god. All right, something must explain this. Now, in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably uh, for three days. This is a governor, probably a Roman governor. Publius's father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery, and Paul went to him, praying and laying his hands on him. He healed him. And after this, the rest of those on the island who had disease also came and were healed. So they heaped many honors on us. And when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. So this is the story all the way through Malta. A lot happening in this voyage, in this journey, if you will. We're still not in Rome. That happens at the beginning of our next week. But I just can't keep going. You guys don't want to keep reading all this, do you? Because I want to look here, as we've explored this story, I want to consider very specifically what is the anchor of Paul's life. And I think it's convenient that he actually articulates it. He articulates it. And he articulates it in where we see verses 21 and 25. And what is such a tumultuous time, Paul comes forward in the only expression, other than the prayer later, and only expression of his position before God, he says this to them. As he's encouraging the people that are on the boat, he says, last night in verse 23, an angel of the God I belong to. My encouragement to you is this. The first thing that Paul is anchored in is his identity in Christ. It doesn't say Jesus there. It says, God I belong to. But as he professes this, outside of Christ, we don't belong to God. We're not his children. We're created by him, but we are separated from him by our sins. Paul has a confidence in that this is the God that I belong to. In Romans 3.23, he told us that all have sinned and fall, fall short of the glory of God. It's sin. It's, it's not just a, a list of wrongdoings in our life. It's a condition of our heart that rebels against God and seeks to live completely independently of his rule. So outside of Christ in our natural, straight, uh, our natural state, we just belong to the world and we're under its influences. Or even as Paul would say in Ephesians, the influence of the prince of the power of the air. But however, in love, God made a way for us to belong to him. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment for our sins on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and offered himself as a sacrificial substitute for all the rebellion that we live by. His death paid the penalty and his resurrection conquered the power of sin and death. That, that is what Paul is confident in. That is why when we trust in Christ, when we are united to him, our old self dies, we are made new, and our identity is no longer defined by our sin, but rather we are adopted into God's family. That we're given a new identity. And as Paul says, we belong to God. We become his children. So in Christ, belonging to God, not by our own merit that Paul's trusting in, but in the performance, not our performance, but in the performance that Christ did on our behalf. That we're not only forgiven of our sin, but we are credited with his righteousness. 
See, this theme of identity in Christ actually reverberates through one of Paul's first prison epistles when he gets to Rome. He writes four epistles, and one of them is in Ephesians. And in Ephesians, he says that he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundations of the world, to be holy and blameless in love before him. Paul points out that our identity is rooted in Christ. We're chosen, we're holy, we're blameless in him. And, you know, I recently had a conversation about traveling abroad and realized that I probably needed to update my passport. Actually, I'm pretty certain of it. I haven't seen it in a long time. Uniquely, a passport is not merely uh, a, a thing to contain our names and our pictures. It actually denotes our nationality, our identity. A, a passport holder belongs to a certain country, enjoys certain privileges and protections. In an even greater sense, being in Christ signifies that we belong to God's family. That we enjoy all the privileges and protections afforded to us by our Heavenly Father. And Paul is confident that he belongs to God. And as he belongs to God, we see the second thing anchoring him. He desires to be obedient to him. Look at that same passage. For last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve. It's not just the God I belong to, but it says the God I serve. The anchor, this anchor of Paul's life is rooted in his obedience to the one who, who he identifies with, to the God who he belongs to. And it's Paul has an unyielding commitment to obedience to God. It's not a simple task-oriented action, but he has a wholehearted dedication to God's will in his life. He serves God with everything he has. He, he, he doesn't just react to circumstances, but he has an unwavering commitment to follow God's will no matter the cost. One of the other prison epistles, Philippians, and one of the passages in chapter three, he considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. His entire life is a pursuit of Christ and his will and knowing God more. And it's not a perfect obedience, friends. That's what I want to encourage us in. I'm not saying that his confidence is because he knows he's walking rightly before God at all times, but rather that's the pursuit of his life. That he has set his sights on being and doing the will of God to the best of his ability. The, the opposite of that in our Christian walk is for us to willingly and knowingly be outside God's desire and will for our life. There's a, this is a beautiful thing. There's a ton of grace from God. That's evident in Christ. So what I don't want to hear, I don't want you to hear this morning is that you know you'll be safe because you're rightly obeying God at all times. Please don't hear that because I would not be safe ever. There's something I'm wrong about. Some of you are probably like, yeah, I could give you a few, maybe. <laughs> you have a list? I'm so proud of you guys. I, I, know, I know of the pastors who get emails after every week's sermon that detail some of the things that they don't appreciate about it. I've got none of those from you. Please don't start. (laughs) 
You can encourage me. You can, you can give me some challenges. That's, that's not to be discouraged. Just, you know, we'll talk about it. But it's not a perfect walk, but everything about his life is set aside to pursue God's will for his life. He says, hey, Paul, you're going to Jerusalem. It's going to go bad for you. He's like, okay, but you need to go. All right, I'll go. Like he knows it's not going to go well. And even as we look at the sea and the storm of life, honestly, this passage, if nothing else, should completely overturn any idea that the Christian life is supposed to be easy. Like, like from the beginning to the end, St. Paul is sitting here, this guy doing what seems to be the right thing at all moments through the story, and he's gotten shipwrecked multiple times. He gets totally ignored in this story, and he gets, on top of it, bit by a random viper that comes out of a woodpile. And he's trying to build a fire for people, keep them warm. But my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is that we and the best of our ability and knowledge continue to pursue obedience to the one we belong to. And live in the freedom and grace that he extends to us. Ultimately, Paul's obedience wasn't born out of a sense of a duty, but from a heart of love for God. He desired to please God more than anything else, and it fueled his obedience. I, I don't want my children, early on they probably should, but I don't want them to obey me out of fear. Early on they might need some encouragement. But ultimately, isn't obedience birthed out of love so much better? It's not that God's waiting to beat us at every moment's act, uh, mistake, but rather that we, out of our love for him and for him calling us his own, we want to serve him and follow him. In Paul's um, obedience here, we see God's faithfulness to him, but there's other ways that we can move. Sometimes the seas and difficulties when we walk outside of God's will for our life, sometimes the challenges we face are really a consequence of our actions. We see example of that, of hardship and instability for the prodigal son when he goes off in that famous parable to leave his father's home, and he faced challenges and difficulties when he, as a consequence of those decisions that he makes. But also sometimes the challenges and the difficulties that we face outside of God's will is really his loving discipline. And we see that example in another sort of shipwreck story in Jonah, where God is disciplining Jonah to go do what he asked him to do in the first place. So he gets actually overthrown into the water, and a fish takes him. It's important for, for us to note that as we follow after God, we can feel safe in his will. And Paul has that anchor in his life. So as he trusts in God, as he as, uh, knows he is identifying with Christ, we also know that he's trusting in God's character. Look at the end of this passage. It's necessary for you to appear to Caesar, and indeed God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. You know, it's difficult for us in any circumstance to really know how things are going to turn out because we can't see the future ourselves. But a really well put 
quote from Charles Spurgeon that I appreciate so well goes like this. God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. That even if Paul hadn't been given this uh, promise of a saved life, he knew the character of God. And in the end of this, knowing his character, he says, I believe God that it will be just the way he told me because he said it will be. The anchor here of Paul's life is founded on the unwavering trust in God's character. We see that demonstrated in many other people throughout scripture. As Abraham, when he was told to go sacrifice Isaac, we see in Hebrews that he trusted that even if he had to go through with the sacrifice, that God would still save his son. But when we don't trust in God's character and the storm comes, we'll slip, we'll fall, we'll trust in ourselves, we'll look for other solutions, we'll look to other people. In essence, when we trust God as Paul did, we're acknowledging his supreme control over everything. That he's unchanging nature, his unfailing promises. We know that no matter what happens, we're safe in his hands. So what happens when Paul is anchored in Christ, when he is trusting in the character of God? Well, we see an overflow of his life. And where do we see that? We see that what I, what I want to point to is three clear ways. First is he has a good reputation among outsiders. Julius treated him kindly and allowed him to go see his friends. Remember, he had companions come along with him. Who, who does this with a prisoner? There's a prisoner coming up and giving their opinion. They listen to Paul. Paul's character and his behavior throughout has earned him trust and privileges, even from those who didn't share his own faith. This is actually one of the requirements of someone who would pastor in the church to be thought well of by outsiders. And that doesn't make them a super Christian. That should be true for all of us. That our trust in God as an anchor for our life should overflow in a way that others think well of us. Peter talks about that in his epistle where he tells us to conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. So when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. And Paul exemplifies this. And we see that everyone thinks well of him throughout this story. And on the flip side of that, some of us, when the world slanders us as evildoers, it's deserved. It's because our character doesn't match the God we, we claim to follow. It's because our words don't match. Because we're not placing our trust in the one who we claim to serve, but rather we're trying to uh, assert ourselves, or maybe we are defending ourselves, or maybe we are trying to trust, place our trust elsewhere, and that shows up in the way we treat others. Instead of seeing Christ's transformative power in us, people may see inconsistency, hypocrisy, or a lifestyle not very different from their own. How we live matters. Our actions, our behaviors can serve as a witness to Christ. And when we're anchored to him, it's visible in how we live. And even outsiders take notice. Not only do outsiders take notice, and probably this is not that much far removed from the fact of why they trusted Paul, but we can see exemplified in his life a love for neighbors. Look at this passage when he talks about the uh, prophecy 
that it's necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And then he says this, and indeed God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. The indication there is that Paul's been praying for all of them. Paul's concerned about their life. He doesn't care who, what God they're following in that very moment. He's concerned about their safety as well. I, may, I bet he would probably, like he said to Agrippa, wish that all of them would be like him. But it says that God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Hey, you've prayed for it here. It's also demonstrating the way he cares for the others on the ship, encouraging them to eat and strengthen themselves. The way that he gives wisdom and saying, hey, these, these sailors can't go. The rest of us can't, can't guide this ship. Jesus tells us that the second most important commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. And in Galatians, Paul himself says the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when we're not anchored to Christ, our love for others can easily become conditional and selective. In challenging situations, we might be tempted to prioritize ourself and be self-seeking over the well-being of others. And Paul's actions during this storm demonstrate for us that as he's anchored in Christ, he also loves his neighbors and cares for them. He cares for their soul, for their heart, for their life. And thirdly, we see the outpouring and the overflow in God's work through you. In this story, we see it through Paul. Remember we said that Paul's been through everything, and then he gets to Acts 28, verse 7, and he goes to a man named Publius's house, and while he's there, he sees Publius's father's bed, suffering with fever and dysentery. He cares for others. He's loving his neighbor. He goes to pray and lay his hands on him. And what does God do through Paul? He heals him. And what happens with the rest of the island? They all hear about this and they come to him. And God continues to minister and work through Paul. And brothers and sisters, if we're not anchored in Christ, how is God working through us? How will he minister with anyone? How can you walk up to a friend or a neighbor and talk about the goodness of God if your life isn't even infounded in, in, in him yourself? That Paul continued to be worked through because his anchor was tied to the only one true anchor that would be that... I'm saying, I got stumbled over here. Paul is able to continue to be worked through by God because he is tied to the one true anchor that will never fail him. Even amidst the chaos and the turmoil, Paul is an instrument of God's healing and love. That even when things aren't going well for us, I remember the, the man I talked about earlier, Dan was his name, who, who had cancer in his last days when he was in the hospital, how the nurses and the doctors talked about him. The testimony and the witness he had because of his joy in Christ. Christ encourages us to let our light shine before others so they might see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. That's the kind of life we can lead when we're anchored in Christ. That's the kind of life we can lead even in the midst of the turmoil and the difficulties and the challenges and the storms, and the sea, and the pontoon boat that's going down. 
no matter what it is that we're facing in this life. And you can find other things that might seem like a steady in the storm. I know that. I, I believe that. I, be, I believe there are families who don't know or believe or trust in Christ whatsoever. They're going through difficulty and challenges and cancer, and they're holding tight on to each other. And that is good. But in the end, Christ is the only one that offers them eternal hope. But we can steady the storm in one another's lives because we are made in God's image. But we can't save one another. And so we have to anchor to Christ, the only one that can. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful in your kindness that you've granted us such a grace that we might be in your family that we might know you in Christ. God, thank you that you have shown us through the life of Paul an example of one who is anchored in his life, even in the turmoil and the struggle that he has anchored to you. That we can see the example in the way that which even in, in the difficulties, even in the uncertainties, even in the storm, that Paul is continuing to demonstrate your love, your kindness, your grace to the ones around him that an overflow of his life is the grace that he has from you, the love that he knows he has from you. And Paul, I, I, and, and Father, I pray that, that we experience that very same grace, mercy, and love, that our life be steady even in the storm. Father, encourage our hearts and make us more like Jesus. I ask all this in Christ's name.